0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Main Street by Sinclair Lewis Chapter 7 Part 1 Gopher Prairie was digging in for the winter. Through late November and all December it snowed daily. The thermometer was at zero and might drop to twenty below, or thirty. Winter is not a season in the North Middle West. It is an industry. Storm sheds were erected at every door. In every block the householders, Sam Clark, the wealthy Mr. Dawson, all save asthmatic Ezra Stowbody, who extravagantly hired a boy, were seen perilously staggering up ladders, carrying storm windows and screwing them to second-story jams. While Kennicott put up his windows, Carol danced inside the bedrooms and begged him not to swallow the screws, which he held in his mouth like an extraordinary set of external false teeth. The universal sign of winter was the town handyman, Miles Bjornstam, a tall, thick, red-mustached bachelor, opinionated atheist, general store arguer, cynical Santa Claus. Children loved him, and he sneaked away from work to tell them improbable stories of seafaring and horse-trading and bears. The children's parents either laughed at him or hated him. He was the one Democrat in town. He called both Lyman Cass the miller and the Finn homesteader from Lost Lake by their first names. He was known as the Red Swede and considered slightly insane. Bjornstam could do anything with his hands. Solder a pan, weld an automobile spring, soothe a frightened filly, tinker a clock, carve a gloucester schooner which magically went into a bottle. Now, for a week, he was Commissioner General of Gopher Prairie. He was the only person besides the repairman at Sam Clark's who understood plumbing. Everybody begged him to look over the furnace and the water pipes. He rushed from house to house till after bedtime, ten o'clock. Icicles from burst water pipes hung along the skirt of his brown dogskin overcoat. His plush cap, which he never took off in the house, was a pulp of ice and coal dust. His red hands were cracked to rawness. He chewed the stub of a cigar. But he was courtly to Carol. He stooped to examine the furnace flues. He straightened, glanced down at her, and hemmed, Got to fix your furnace, no matter what else I do. The poorer houses of Gopher Prairie, where the services of Miles Bjornstam were a luxury, which included the shanty of Miles Bjornstam, were banked to the lower windows with earth and manure. Along the railroad, the sections of snow fence, which had been stacked all summer in romantic wooden tents occupied by roving small boys, were set up to prevent drifts from covering the track. The farmers came into town in homemade sleighs with bed quilts and hay piled in the rough boxes. Fur coats, fur caps, fur mittens, overshoes buckling almost to the knees, gray knitted scarfs ten feet long, thick woolen socks, canvas jackets lined with fluffy yellow wool like the plumage of ducklings, moccasins, red flannel wristlets for the blazing chapped wrists of boys. These protections against winter were busily dug out of mothball-sprinkled drawers and tar bags in closets, and all over town small boys were squealing, Oh, there's my mittens! Or, Look at my shoe-packs! There is so sharp a division between the panting summer and the stinging winter of the northern plains that they rediscovered with surprise and a feeling of heroism this armor of an Arctic explorer. Winter garments surpassed even personal gossip as the topic at parties. It was good form to ask, Put on your heavies yet? There were as many distinctions in wraps as in motor cars. The lesser sort appeared in yellow and black dogskin coats, but Kennicott was lordly in a long raccoon ulster and a new seal cap. When the snow was too deep for his motor, He went off on country calls in a shiny, floral, steel-tipped cutter, only his ruddy nose and his cigar emerging from the fur. Carol herself stirred Main Street by a loose coat of nutria. Her fingertips loved the silken fur. Her liveliest activity now was organizing outdoor sports in the motor-paralyzed town. The automobile and bridge whist had not only made more evident the social divisions in Gopher Prairie, but they had also enfeebled the love of activity, it was so rich-looking to sit and drive, and so easy. Skiing and sliding were stupid and old-fashioned. In fact, the village longed for the elegance of city recreations almost as much as the cities longed for village sports. And Gopher Prairie took as much pride in neglecting coasting as St. Paul, or New York, in going coasting. Carroll did inspire a successful skating party in mid-November. Plover Lake glistened in clear sweeps of green-gray ice, ringing to the skates. On shore, the ice-tipped reeds clattered in the wind, and oak twigs with stubborn last leaves hung against a milky sky. Harry Haydock did figure-eights, and Carol was certain that she had found the perfect life. But when snow had ended the skating and she tried to get up a moonlight sliding party, The matrons hesitated to stir away from their radiators and their daily bridge-whist imitations of the city. She had to nag them. They scooted down a long hill on a bobsled. They upset and got snow down their necks. They shrieked that they would do it again immediately, and they did not do it again at all. She badgered another group into going skiing. They shouted and threw snowballs and informed her it was such fun, and they'd have another skiing expedition right away. And they jollily returned home and never thereafter left their manuals of bridge. Carol was discouraged. She was grateful when Kennicott invited her to go rabbit hunting in the woods. She waded down stilly cloisters between burnt stump and icy oak through drifts marked with a million hieroglyphics of rabbit and mouse and bird. She squealed as he leaped on a pile of brush and fired at the rabbit which ran out. He belonged there, masculine in reefer and sweater and high-laced boots. That night she ate prodigiously of steak and fried potatoes. She produced electric sparks by touching his ear with her fingertip. She slept twelve hours and awoke to think how glorious was this brave land. She rose to a radiance of sun on snow. Snug in her furs she trotted uptown. Frosted shingles smoked against a sky colored like flax blossoms. Sleigh bells clinked, shouts of greeting were loud in the thin bright air, and everywhere was a rhythmic sound of wood-sawing. It was Saturday, and the neighbors' sons were getting up the winter fuel. Behind walls of corded wood in backyards, their sawbucks stood in depressions scattered with canary-yellow flakes of sawdust. The frames of their buck-saws were cherry-red, the blades blued steel, and the fresh-cut ends of the sticks—poplar, maple, ironwood, birch were marked with engraved rings of growth. The boys wore shoe packs, blue flannel shirts with enormous pearl buttons, and mackinaws of crimson, lemon yellow, and foxy brown. Carol cried, fine day, to the boys. She came in a glow to Howland and Gold's grocery, her collar white with frost from her breath. She bought a can of tomatoes as though it were orient fruit, and returned home planning to surprise Kennicott with an omelet creole for dinner. So brilliant was the snow glare, that when she entered the house she saw the doorknobs, the newspaper on the table, every white surface as dazzling mauve, and her head was dizzy in the pyrotechnic dimness. When her eyes had recovered she felt expanded, drunk with health, mistress of life. The world was so luminous that she sat down at her rickety little desk in the living room to make a poem. She got no farther then. The sky is bright, the sun is warm, there ne'er will be another storm. In the mid-afternoon of this same day, Kennicott was called into the country. It was B's evening out, her evening for the Lutheran dance. Carol was alone from three till midnight. She wearied of reading pure love stories in the magazines and sat by a radiator beginning to brood. Thus she chanced to discover that she had nothing to do. Part Two. She had, she meditated, passed through the novelty of seeing the town and meeting people of skating and sliding and hunting. Bee was competent. There was no household labor except sewing and darning and gossipy assistance to Bee in bed-making. She couldn't satisfy her ingenuity in planning meals. At Dahl and Olson's Meat Market you didn't give orders. You woefully inquired whether there was anything today besides steak and pork and ham. The cuts of beef were not cuts, they were hacks. Lamb chops were as exotic as shark's fins. The meat dealers shipped their best to the city with its higher prices. In all the shops there was the same lack of choice. She could not find a glass-headed picture nail in town. She did not hunt for the sort of veiling she wanted. She took what she could get. And only at Howland and Gold's was there such a luxury as canned asparagus. Routine care was all she could devote to the house. Only by such fussing as the widow Bogart's could she make it fill her time she could not have outside employment to the village doctor's wife it was taboo she was a woman with a working brain and no work there were only three things which she could do have children start her career of reforming or become so definitely a part of the town that she would be fulfilled by the activities of church and study club and bridge parties children yes she wanted them but she was not quite ready She had been embarrassed by Kennicott's frankness, but she agreed with him that in the insane condition of civilization, which made the rearing of citizens more costly and perilous than any other crime, it was inadvisable to have children till he had made more money. She was sorry. Perhaps he had made all the mystery of love a mechanical cautiousness, but she fled from the thought with a dubious, Someday... Her reforms, her impulses toward beauty in raw Main Street, they had become indistinct. But she would set them going now. She would. She swore it with a soft fist beating the edges of the radiator. And at the end of all her vows, she had no notion as to when and where the crusade was to begin. Become an authentic part of the town? She began to think with unpleasant lucidity. She reflected that she did not know whether the people liked her. She had gone to the women at afternoon coffees, to the merchants in their stores with so many outpouring comments and whimsies that she hadn't given them a chance to betray their opinions of her. The men smiled, but did they like her? She was lively among the women, but was she one of them? She could not recall many times when she had been admitted to the whispering of scandal, which is the secret chamber of gopher-prairie conversation. She was poisoned with doubt as she drooped up to bed next day, through her shopping, her mind sat back and observed. Dave Dyer and Sam Clark were as cordial as she had been fancying. But wasn't there an impersonal abruptness in the, are you, of Chet Dashaway? Howland the grocer was curt. Was that merely his usual manner? It's infuriating to have to pay attention to what people think. In St. Paul I didn't care. But here I'm spied on. They're watching me. I mustn't let it make me self-conscious, she coaxed herself, overstimulated by the drug of thought and offensively on the defensive. Part 3 A thaw which stripped the snow from the sidewalks, a ringing iron night when the lakes could be heard booming, a clear, roistering morning. In tam-o-shanter and tweed skirt, Carol felt herself a college junior going out to play hockey. She wanted to whoop, her legs ached to run. On the way home from shopping, she yielded as a pup would have yielded. She galloped down a block, and as she jumped from a curb across a welter of slush, she gave a student, Yippee! She saw that in a window, three old women were gasping. Their triple glare was paralyzing. Across the street, at another window, the curtain had secretively moved. She stopped, walked on sedately, changed from the girl Carol into Mrs. Dr. Kennicott she never again felt quite young enough and defiant enough and free enough to run and hallow in the public streets and it was as a nice married woman that she attended the next weekly bridge of the jolly seventeen part four the jolly seventeen the membership of which ranged from fourteen to twenty-six was the social cornice of gopher prairie it was the country club the diplomatic set the saint cecilia the ritz oval room the Club de Vin. To belong to it was to be in. Though its membership partly coincided with that of the Thanatopsis study club, the Jolly 17 as a separate entity guffawed at the Thanatopsis and considered it middle class and even highbrow. Most of the Jolly 17 were young married women with their husbands as associate members. Once a week they had a women's afternoon bridge. Once a month The husbands joined them for supper and evening bridge. Twice a year they had dances at I.O.O.F. Hall. Then the town exploded. Only at the annual balls of the firemen and of the Eastern Star was there such prodigality of chiffon scarfs and tangoing and heart-burnings, and these rival institutions were not select. Hired girls attended the firemen's ball, with section hands and laborers. Ellis Stobody had once gone to a jolly 17 soiree in the village hack, hitherto confined to chief mourners at funerals, and Harry Haydock and Dr. Terry Gold always appeared in the town's only specimens of evening clothes. The afternoon bridge of the jolly 17, which followed Carol's lonely doubting, was held at Juanita Haydock's new concrete bungalow, with its door of polished oak and beveled plate glass, jar of ferns in the plastered hall, and in the living room, a fumed oak Morris chair, 16 color prints, and a square varnished table with a mat made of cigar ribbons on which was one illustrated gift edition and one pack of cards in a burnt leather case. Carol stepped into a Sirocco of furnace heat. They were already playing. Despite her flabby resolves she had not yet learned bridge. She was winningly apologetic about it to Juanita and ashamed that she would have to go on being apologetic. Mrs. Dave Dyer a sallow woman with a thin prettiness devoted to experiments in religious cults, illnesses, and scandal-bearing, shook her finger at Carol and trilled, You're a naughty one. I don't believe you appreciate the honor when you got into the Jolly Seventeen so easy. Mrs. Chet Dashway nudged her neighbor at the second table. But Carol kept up the appealing bridal manner so far as possible. She twittered, You're perfectly right. I'm a lazy thing. I'll make Will start teaching me this very evening. Her supplication had all the sound of birdies in the nest and Easter church bells and frosted Christmas cards. Internally she snarled, That ought to be saccharine enough. She sat in the smallest rocking chair, a model of Victorian modesty. But she saw, or she imagined, that the women who had gurgled at her so welcomingly when she had first come to Gopher Prairie were nodding at her brusquely. During the pause after the first game, she petitioned Mrs. Jackson Elder. Don't you think we ought to get up another bobsled party soon? It's so cold when you get dumped in the snow, said Mrs. Elder indifferently. I hate snow down my neck, volunteered Mrs. Dave Dyer with an unpleasant look at Carol, and turning her back, she bubbled at Rita Simons. Dearie, won't you run in this evening? I've got the loveliest new butterick pattern I want to show you. Carol crept back to her chair. In the fervor of discussing the game, they ignored her. She was not used to being a wallflower. She struggled to keep from oversensitiveness, from becoming unpopular by the sure method of believing that she was unpopular. But she hadn't much reserve of patience, and at the end of the second game, when Ellis Stowbody sniffily asked her, Are you going to send to Minneapolis for your dress for the next soiree? Heard you were. Carol said, Don't know yet? with unnecessary sharpness. She was relieved by the admiration with which the jeune fille Rita Simmons looked at the steel buckles on her pumps, but she resented Mrs. Howland's tart demand. Don't you find that new couch of yours is too broad to be practical? She nodded, then shook her head, and touchily left Mrs. Howland to get out of it any meaning she desired. Immediately she wanted to make peace. She was close to simpering in the sweetness with which she addressed Mrs. Howland. I think that is the prettiest display of beef tea your husband has in his store. Oh, yes, Gopher Prairie isn't so much behind the times, jibed Mrs. Howland. Someone giggled. Their rebuffs made her haughty. Her haughtiness irritated them to franker rebuffs. They were working up to a state of painfully righteous war when they were saved by the coming of food. Though Juanita Haydock was highly advanced in the matters of finger bowls, doilies, and bath mats, her refreshments were typical of all the afternoon coffees. Juanita's best friends, Mrs. Dyer and Mrs. Dashaway, passed large dinner plates, each with a spoon, a fork, and a coffee cup without saucer. They apologized and discussed the afternoon's game as they passed through the thicket of women's feet. Then they distributed hot buttered rolls, coffee poured from an enamelware pot stuffed olives, potato salad, and Angel's food cake. There was, even in the most strictly conforming gopher prairie circles, a certain option as to collations. The olives need not be stuffed. Donuts were in some houses well thought of as a substitute for the hot buttered rolls. But there was in all the town no heretic save Carol, who omitted Angel's food. They ate enormously. Carol had a suspicion that the thriftier housewives made the afternoon treat due for evening supper. She tried to get back into the current. She edged over to Mrs. McGannum. Chunky, amiable, young Mrs. McGannum, with her breast and arms of a milkmaid, and her loud, delayed laugh, which burst startlingly from a sober face, was the daughter of old Dr. Westlake, and the wife of Westlake's partner, Dr. McGannum. Kennicott asserted that Westlake and McGannum and their contaminated families were tricky, but Carol had found them gracious. She asked for friendliness by crying to Mrs. McGannum, How is the baby's throat now? And she was attentive while Mrs. McGannum rocked and knitted and placidly described symptoms. Vida Sherwin came in after school with Miss Ethel Villitz, the town librarian. Miss Sherwin's optimistic presence gave Carol more confidence. She talked. She informed the circle. I drove almost down to Waquinian with Will a few days ago. Isn't the country lovely? and I do admire the Scandinavian farmers down there so, their big red barns and silos and milking machines and everything. Do you all know that lonely Lutheran church with the tin-covered spire that stands out alone on a hill? It's so bleak. Somehow it seems so brave. I do think the Scandinavians are the hardiest and best people. Oh, do you think so? protested Mrs. Jackson Elder. My husband says the Svenskas that work in the planning mill are perfectly terrible. So silent and cranky and so selfish the way they keep demanding raises. If they had their way, they'd simply ruin the business. Yes, and they're simply ghastly hired girls, wailed Mrs. Dave Dyer. I swear, I work myself to skin and bone trying to please my hired girls when I can get them. I do everything in the world for them. They can have their gentleman friends call on them in the kitchen any time, and they get just the same to eat as we do if there's any left over. And I practically never jump on them. Juanita Haydock rattled. They're ungrateful, all that class of people. I do think the domestic problem is simply becoming awful. I don't know what the country's coming to with these Scandahoofian clodhoppers demanding every cent you can save and so ignorant and impertinent and, on my word, demanding bathtubs and everything as if they weren't mighty good and lucky at home if they got a bath in the washtub. They were off, riding hard. Carol thought of B and waylaid them. But isn't it possibly the fault of the mistresses if the maids are ungrateful? For generations we've given them the leavings of food and holes to live in. I don't want to boast, but I must say I don't have much trouble with B. She's so friendly, the Scandinavians are sturdy and honest. Mrs. Dave Dyer snapped. Honest? Do you call it honest to hold us up for every cent of pay they can get? I can't say that I've had any of them steal anything, though you might call it stealing to eat so much that a roast of beef hardly lasts three days. But just the same, I don't intend to let them think they can put anything over on me. I always make them pack and unpack their trunks downstairs right under my eyes, and then I know they aren't being tempted to dishonesty by any slackness on my part. "'How much do the maids get here?' Carol ventured. Mrs. B. J. Gougerling, wife of the banker, stated in a shocked manner, "'Any place from three-fifty to five-fifty a week!' I know positively that Mrs. Clark, after swearing that she wouldn't weaken and encourage them in their outrageous demands, went and paid five-fifty, think of it, practically a dollar a day for unskilled work and, of course, her food and room and a chance to do her own washing right in with the rest of the wash. How much do you pay, Mrs. Kennicott? Yes, how much do you pay? insisted a half a dozen. Well, I, I pay six a week she feebly confessed. They gasped. Juanita protested, Don't you think it's hard on the rest of us when you pay so much? Juanita's demand was reinforced by the universal glower. Carol was angry. I don't care. A maid has one of the hardest jobs on earth. She works from ten to eighteen hours a day. She has to wash slimy dishes and dirty clothes. She tends the children and runs to the door with wet-chapped hands and... Mrs. David Dyer broke into Carol's peroration with a furious, That's all very well, but believe me, I do those things myself when I'm without a maid, and that's a good share of the time for a person that isn't willing to yield and pay exorbitant wages. Carol was retorting, But a maid does it for strangers, and all she gets out of it is the pay. Their eyes were hostile. Four of them were talking at once. Vida Sherwin's dictatorial voice cut through, took control of the revolution. Tut. Tut-tut-tut! What angry passions! And what an idiotic discussion! All of you getting too serious. Stop it! Carol Kennicott, you're probably right, but you're too much ahead of the times. Juanita, quit looking so belligerent. What is this, a card party or a hen fight? Carol, you stop admiring yourself as the Joan of Arc of the Hired Girls, or I'll spank you. You come over here and talk libraries with Ethel Villets. Boo! If there's any more pecking, I'll take charge of the hen roost myself. They all laughed artificially, and Carol obediently talked libraries. A small-town bungalow, the wives of a village doctor and a village dry-goods merchant, a provincial teacher, a colloquial brawl over paying a servant a dollar more a week. Yet this insignificance echoed cellar plots and cabinet meetings and labor conferences in Persia and Prussia, Rome and Boston, and the orators who deemed themselves international leaders were but the raised voices of a billion Juanitas denouncing a million Carols, with a hundred thousand Vitus Sherwins trying to shoo away the storm. Carol felt guilty. She devoted herself to admiring the spinsterish Miss Villets, and immediately committed another offense against the laws of decency. We haven't seen you at the library yet, Miss Villets reproved. Oh, I've wanted to run in so much, but I've been getting settled, and I'll probably come in so often you get tired of me. I hear you have such a nice library. There are many who like it. We have 2,000 more books than Wackerman. "'Isn't that fine? I'm sure you are largely responsible. I've had some experience in St. Paul. So I have been informed. Not that I entirely approve of library methods in these large cities. So careless, letting tramps and all sorts of dirty persons practically sleep in the reading rooms.' "'I know, but the poor souls... Well, I'm sure you will agree with me in one thing. The chief task of a librarian is to get people to read.' "'You feel so?' My feeling, Mrs. Kennicott, and I am merely quoting the librarian of a very large college, is that the first duty of the conscientious librarian is to preserve the books. Oh, Carol repented her, oh, Miss Villette stiffened and attacked. It may be all very well in cities where they have unlimited funds to let nasty children ruin books and just deliberately tear them up, and fresh young men take more books out than they are entitled to by the regulations, but I'm never going to permit it in this library. What if some children are destructive? They learn to read. Books are cheaper than mines. Nothing is cheaper than the minds of some of these children that come in and bother me simply because their mothers don't keep them home where they belong. Some librarians may choose to be so wishy-washy and turn their libraries into nursing homes and kindergartens, but as long as I'm in charge, the Gopher Prairie Library is going to be quiet and decent and the books well kept. Carol saw that the others were listening, waiting for her to be objectionable. She flinched before their dislike. She hastened to smile in agreement with Miss Phillips, to glance publicly at her wristwatch, to warble that it was so late have to hurry home Husband, such nice party. Maybe you are right about maids. Prejudice, because be so nice. Such perfectly divine angels' food. Mrs. Haydock must give me the recipe. Goodbye, such happy party. She walked home. She reflected. It was my fault. I was touchy. And I opposed them so much. Only, I can't. I can't be one of them if I must damn all the maids toiling in filthy kitchens, all the ragged, hungry children and these women are to be my arbiters the rest of my life. She ignored Bee's call from the kitchen. She ran upstairs to the unfrequented guest room. She wept in terror, her body a pale arc as she knelt beside a cumbrous, black walnut bed, beside a puffy mattress covered with a red quilt, in a shuttered and airless room. End of Chapter 7